Becoming happy and empowered. If we look at the second part of that, becoming empowered, it's generally thought of in relation to having the freedom and the strength, I guess, would be a way to put it, to really make decisions and do things. Unfortunately, most of us are probably very unaware of who is pulling the strings? Who is it that is influencing us? What are the influences in our lives and our thinking that make it so we make certain types of decisions? Anybody that's looked a little closely at social media and how it is designed. You know, there's a guy in, in Silicon Valley and um, his whole field of expertise is designing buttons little things that you press to go somewhere. And he is so skilled at manipulating people and making them press buttons that you have to pay $15,000 to be able to sit in an auditorium like this and let him listen to him speak for a few hours. A great value is placed upon manipulation. In fact, it's everything. This is the driving force behind all commercial activity. It's fundamentally to manipulate what is categorized as a market, you and I, and get you to do something, to make a decision and to act in a way that I will benefit financially. The roots of this type of thinking or the roots of this skill set 
and how it is utilized actually began in about 1920 with a gentleman called Edward, Eddie Bernays, who was the nephew of Sigmund Freud. He became the first master manipulator on a grand scale, utilizing the techniques that he acquired from his uncle in the manipulation of the masses. His first non-political, first he was uh, acted uh, for Woodrow Wilson, who was the president at that time, to convince the American population they should enter the war, the First World War. And, um, and then later he ran a massive campaign in Europe influencing people to accept and believe that Woodrow Wilson was the great savior of Europe and the push towards democracies as that time the majority of the world's population lived under autocratic um, systems of governance. Returning to America, he was approached by the tobacco industry. The tobacco industry was extremely distressed because their market was only half as big as it could be because women didn't smoke. It was like a big no-no. You just didn't smoke. Lots of different reasons for it. It was considered socially unacceptable. And so they wanted to hire Eddie Bernays to see if he could help them get women to smoke cigarettes. Eddie engaged a couple of psychologists and they developed a whole idea, which he then put into um, action, this plan. He approached the socialites who were very active in the women's suffrage movement. And he convinced them that during a St. Peter's, uh, St. Patrick's Day parade in New York, that when they were going to march as a contingent in this parade to demonstrate and demand the right for to, to be able to vote, he convinced the women to hide in their clothing cigarettes and lighters, something to light them with. And then he said, on my command, let's all take them out together, light them up, and march down the street smoking cigarettes. And then being the master manipulator that he was, he gathered the press, including international press together, and told them something really amazing was going to happen today. Something extraordinary. That in this parade, women were going to light up torches of freedom. How's that? Gross or what? And on his command, 
all of the suffragettes whipped out their cigarettes and lit, the, lit them up and boldly walked down the street puffing cigarettes. And all over the world, in all of the major European capitals at least in America, this picture was printed on the, on the, often on the front page. And they used his byline, women, marching in protest, lighting up torches of freedom. And so this became now associated with how you stick it to the men. You light a cigarette and you puff in their face. And next thing you know it, we had now another large percentage of the population addicted to nicotine. I mean, it was so grossly manipulative that it's almost unbelievable. And that was just the beginning point. And there, from there, he, he, when he returned from Europe, he was engaged in what he categorized as propaganda. That was the common usage. But the word propaganda got a really bad name because of the way the Germans applied it in the First World War, according to Eddie. And so he felt the need to come up with a new term to help um, in a more benign way mm, associate his trade with something you know, benevolent. And so he was the one that coined the phrase public relations. And it was used to replace the word propaganda. Now, of course, we, you know, we live in a time where this is all just like, it's gone. We, we, we don't think about this. We are not very in touch with the actual way in which society has developed as a result of quite blatant manipulation and how many of the choices that we make many of the decisions that we make are not really our own. We are not acting truly in a manner that is free and entirely independent. We are extremely um, moved by what society is doing and what messaging is being thrown at us and what messaging is being adopted by others. From the Vedic perspective, this is not at all empowering. This is, in fact, considered just the opposite, people becoming enslaved. I don't mean that in a very radical or revolutionary sort of way, but just a, a practical reality. The reason that we're speaking about this is because when we look at the topic of, of happiness and seeking happiness, which we all seek, I don't think anybody is, is, wakes up in the morning and goes, I hope I'm really miserable today. <laughs> and calls someone, how can, I, how can I get some misery in my life? We, we want the opposite. We want to become happy. And... Mostly, we have no idea, really, how to do it. We are acting on so many suppositions. We are acting 
being controlled by so many ideas that actually haven't come from us, that have invaded our headspace. Because every time we submit ourselves to the manipulation of social media, advertising, you know, this is the driving engine for the economy. And it's just part of daily life. Something extraordinary is happening, though, and that is people are not very sure about whether they're actually becoming happy or not. When they run these different surveys around the world, um, polling people on happiness, it's all kind of relative to your own experience, which is somewhat limited. But if we look at other symptoms and signs, I think there is a clear indication that as a society, as, as humanity at large, we are not becoming happier. And this is evidenced by the enormous, the monumentally enormous consumption of mood-altering substances, legal and illegal. We have industries that have sales greater than the GDP of probably, you know, two-thirds of the country in the world just marketing psychotropic substances. I mean, what, what's, what's happened? We are seeing rates, rates of depression that are unparalleled, unparalleled. I saw a figure, I was, came uh, down from Darwin when I was up there, I, was, I saw a news article where they now are predicting that the cost of mental health and all its connected activity, the cost to the world from 2010 to 2030 is going to be $16 trillion. I mean, we, we can't even get our head around what a trillion dollars is. What, what is with that? Why is this happening? You know, about a year ago, on a day just like today, eight Australians couldn't take it anymore and killed themselves. And that wasn't even unusual because it happened every day before that and every day after it and now has even increased. And one must ask the question, are we actually becoming happier as a nation, as a society, as humanity? And if we're not, why? What's wrong? Why? 
there's this um, English comedian, Russell Brand. You know him? Yeah. He's a bit of a scream. He's actually a highly intellectual person. And he recently wrote a book and he was doing these speaking tours, the speaking tour, you know, promoting his book. And there was a clip of him on a television show where he was being interviewed and he was talking about his life's quest for happiness. And he started talking about the things that gave him pleasure. He said that he absolutely loved a good drink. In fact, he loved a lot of good drinks. He drank way too much. He loved it, he said. Then he moves on to cocaine. He had a particular attraction to cocaine and the effect that it has on the mm, neurological the reaction that comes. So he was snorting massive amounts of cocaine and he said he loved it. I loved it. I, I loved it. <laughs> and then he, he says, and heroin, he loved heroin. That's another type of safe space that people go to, to seeking to avoid the stress and the difficulty of life. And you shoot up an opiate, it takes you to like back to the womb kind of thing. And he said he loved it. And he was just like constantly using these things. And while they were incredibly stimulating and delivered great rushes of pleasure, he was not happy. He was so unhappy, he was becoming suicidal. It's like, well, how come we're having a hard time seeing with clarity? How come we're having a hard time seeing this reality that we're actually all aware of? You know, I can stimulate my senses like crazy, any one of them or all of them, I can stimulate them into a frenzy. I can receive massive amounts of sensual pleasure and stimulation and still be suicidal because I'm so depressed. I'm so unhappy. And that's because there is actually no connection between sensual stimulation and the pleasure that one gets from it and actual happiness. The Bhagavad Gita speaks of happiness as being actually a spiritual condition, not a material condition, a spiritual condition. And it will not be attained by any amount of material activity. We have this other problem with, with you know, our quest for happiness. 
Does anybody look for happiness that lasts for five minutes? If we think, well, yeah, this one's offering three minutes, this one's offering four minutes, I'm looking here, oh, oh, five minutes, yeah, I'm having some of that. (laughs) Nobody's looking for short term. We desire what? We desire eternal happiness. This has been part of our culture for hundreds and thousands of years. All of the kids' books used to end with, and they lived happily ever after. Why was that so appealing? Why doesn't that raise a red flag? You know, we take that to be normal. We take that to be not only acceptable, but desirable. We desire to exist in a state of perpetual happiness. And there's nothing wrong with that. That is a great, great idea. That is a great desire. That is a great want. The problem lies that we, we exist in a very limited two-dimensional paradigm, something that is really flat. You turn it on the side, there's nothing there. When you turn it this way, it looks like, okay, this is happening. What do I mean by that? Well, we exist in a world where everyone is utterly convinced that the current body they are occupying is them. If I have a woman's body on, I'm a woman. If I have a man's body on, I'm a man. If my body is young, I'm a child. If my body is old, I'm an old dude. If my body is fat, I'm fat. If my body is thin, I'm thin. We have become so enormously attached to this notion and idea that actually has no scientific basis whatsoever. And it is a cause of great problem for us. All you've got to do is seek love or to seek validation, to seek acceptance because of the body that you have, this whole body image thing. And you are just buying into a world of pain, a world of unhappiness. If this is where you are going to go, I can absolutely assure you that it is not not only going to not end well, the journey is not going to be very pleasant at all. In fact, that journey is going to be a journey where I frequently experience great unhappiness and even depression. So we've touched on two kind of like pretty interesting ideas. One is the idea that the search for happiness 
should be a material activity and a material engagement. And the other idea is that I will find peace, I will find love, I will find happiness simply through this idea or notion that the current body I have on is me. This is categorized in the Bhagavad Gita as being a state of ignorance. Doesn't matter how many PhDs you have, doesn't matter how skilled you are at certain things, if this is your paradigm, is this is the world that you are living in, the state of consciousness that you are living in, you are guaranteed of disappointment and great unhappiness. They have a little formula in most of the um, dharmic religions, Buddhism, Hinduism, and its different varieties, etc. This basic idea that ignorance equals pain. If in your life you are feeling pain, if you are feeling suffering, if you are distraught, if you are disturbed, it is always going to be attributed to embracing ideas and living lifestyles that are fundamentally categorized as ignorant. Is this challenging or we okay with this or too serious? No one's throwing anything yet, so I, I'm not sure if everybody's just in shock or... You know, it's, it's really important to be able to look at these things with great clarity so that you can begin to really consider, is there an alternative? I mean, we, we have to be practical. We have to be real. If my life's choices are producing these outcomes, maybe these are the wrong choices. There is this fundamental. I, I, I teach a, a class in New Zealand. We run a weekly program in uh, one of the maximum security prisons. And it's a very interesting place to, to deal with people that have done horrific things and are now lost their freedom to exist in society and do whatever they want. And we begin our program with the need to recognize something. Wherever you are today, wherever you are and what you're experiencing, it is always the result of decisions that you made, choices that you took, and actions based on those decisions and choices. Every single act that you engage in will bear a fruit. If you are fundamentally unhappy, it is actually because 
And this is not a superficial idea. This is an incredibly profound idea. It is always because of choices that I have made. And therefore, learning to make really good choices in life is really going to make such a difference. It can actually completely determine the outcome of your life. What is your life's experience going to be between this point up to the point and including your experience of death? If you want a life that is fulfilling, if you want a life where happiness is truly experienced, where one can truly find peace, then making decisions and engaging in action that has a truly enlightened foundation will produce that. This is what is being taught in the Bhagavad Gita. In the Bhagavad Gita, this is a, um, an incredible conversation between Sri Krishna and a great warrior prince. His name was Arjuna. He was not just a brute. He was incredibly refined and highly intelligent. And in this conversation, it begins with a great lamentation of Arjuna, who is about to enter a great battle. And this man is not a coward. He is extremely uh, brave, heroic. But he is so overwhelmed by what he is now witnessing and seeing in preparation for this battle, he seeks guidance from Sri Krishna. The very first point that is discussed is that one must develop this understanding and appreciation of our eternal spiritual nature and how this body which we are occupying is not us. This is not us. This is something that you're going to wear around for a while. It is going to age and an aging process is completely crappy. There is no upside to it. It just gets worse and worse until finally your body becomes uninhabitable and you are forced to leave. That is what the experience of death is. Now on this foundation, on this foundation, this is now a whole nother paradigm. And it's like, oh my God, really? I'm not the body? I'm an eternal spiritual being hanging out in this. I, I've lost the plot and I've totally, I'm just so into this body thinking that it's me and so much trying to find happiness and love, to love and to be loved. You know, the desire for happiness and the desire for love is understood to be eternal spirit 
spiritual needs of the spiritual being. Not, they don't arise from the body and the mind. No, they actually arise from our eternal spiritual being. And if I am going to fulfill them, I need to get very real about life. I must understand that living in this world, I am going to be presented with massive amounts of limitation. I should not expect to find perpetual happiness in material experience. Anything that is by nature material has a beginning, and anything that has a beginning must come to an end. We're now cycling back to five minutes of happiness. You know, we look, we want to have something longer. We want to have something that lasts forever, happily ever after. We want that. But you cannot find it in the material experience because everything in the material dimension has a beginning and everything that has a beginning must come to an end. So your choices for your happiness, experiences that you want, accept that the result of that choice is going to be limited. You will not find unlimited fulfillment and happiness in it. It may give you a bit of a rush for a while, and that's all okay. That's not the issue. The issue is not material experience. The issue is when you want that to be eternal, when you want it to be a spiritual condition. It can't deliver. It just can't do it. We have, we have the same deficit. In, in, in relationships and love. Oh, we put such burden on each other, expecting that another person can fulfill my need for love, that someone else can love me perfectly or I can love them perfectly forever. No, no, <laughs> that's not real. It doesn't work like that. That's not the nature of, of the experience of love, the limited experience of love in the material dimension. No, you, you meet somebody and you get so excited and the heart is beating fast and you're just tremendously stimulated and aroused in so many different ways and it's just like, oh, is this it? Is this it? <laughs> and they call it falling in love. Falling is a really good term to use. It's like falling in a bit of a hole. I hope I'm not coming across as the grouch. What I, what I want to just sort of share with you is that, hey, we've got to get real about things because the things that we're talking about, happiness and love, for instance, there are eternal spiritual states. They are part of my eternal spiritual nature. And if I'm going to actually find them and have this experience, I, I got I to wake up really quick. I got to turn the light on. 
Because right now we're just stumbling around in the dark, trying so many things. And everybody's selling us stuff. And I, my favorite guys to beat up on are Coca-Cola. What a ridiculous advertisement campaign. Open happiness. Those guys really got a lot of, you know, that word B something something LLS. <laughs> they got a lot to be to, you know, to say that that sugary carbonated syrup in a bottle is going to induce happiness. It doesn't. It's impossible. It can't. Because if it did, the more of it that you drank, the happier you would become. And this is another thing that you will learn from the Bhagavad Gita. That anything that you think is giving you happiness, the more you do it, the happier you must become. And if you are not becoming happier, what's going on there? I mean, it's astonishing. Somebody likes a certain music, and when I hear this music, oh, I get goosebumps. It's like, ooh, ooh, it's so nice, you know. Okay, tie them to the chair and put the headphones on. This is all you're going to listen to for 48 hours. Let's see how that one goes. Quickly, from goosebumps to nausea, from ecstasy to agony. <laughs> it's just the nature of things. And we, we have developed this idea simply because we have been overly enamored by this unreal idea that the body is me, that we've come up with this cute phrase that everybody uses, variety is the spice of life. You've got to constantly mix it up. You constantly need to be doing new things, new stimulation, new pleasurable experience in order to feel kind of like maybe it's working out okay, hopefully. But that's not, that's not realistic. That's not true. There is this need to look at things in a, in a lot deeper way. course this idea that I'm a spiritual being and I'm not the body what the hell's going to happen if I really take that one on board <laughs> I mean my my whole life is going to have to change it would necessarily change or at least not necessarily all the activities but my motivation for things and, and what's really going to drive me and wh where I'm going and what I'm pursuing and what I'm seeking. But that's kind of like almost like too much. Okay, that's kind of like a cool idea and let's put that one in the bookshelf and let, let's get back to the TV or get back to the cell phone, Facebook. Oh, friend, 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 like, 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 friend, friend. Oh, We've become such idiots. All of this stuff is designed to keep you servile and stupid so that you can be exploited for money. 
I'm sorry. That's the reality. Let's get a grip here. It's not that things cannot be used and used for some good. But don't go live there. Don't think those friends are really friends. Don't think selfies are real. No, that's just a pretense. You notice when people take a picture? Nobody likes to take a picture. It's not like you you, you wake up in the morning, you know, and your hair is everywhere and this dried saliva on your mouth. And you get the stones and stuff. Well, somebody will try that, you know, and become this weird personality. So then everybody will be rushing there and like, 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 like. You know, the guys who do LOL, they never laugh. (laughs) They just say it. (laughs) They don't actually laugh. It's like we've become so weird. We We live in our minds. We live in our minds. And that is not a healthy place to be hanging out if we are misdirected and misguided if we have assumed so many incorrect things to be the truth, this results in what we see, this massive rise in depression, the massive rise in people feeling so tormented and struggling and not knowing what to do, not realizing that I got there by doing this, And I think I'll get out of it by doing this. (laughs) That's just like, how can you think that? That's just not even, that's really dumb. It's because people have understood that there are triggers. They know how to manipulate psychologically. Advertising basically promises You know, there is this fundamental recognition in all advertising, the recognition that everybody at the heart of things is empty. We feel an emptiness within our heart. And then they promise a product, an experience, something that will fill up that emptiness. Again, Coca-Cola. These guys are actually really good. From way back, Coke is it. Coke is what? It. What is it? It. Coke is it. <laughs> it's the promise. I, I, I spent many years in the, in the Philippines, and there was this classic ad campaign for a cigarette there. The brand was Hope. And they had this woman... Uh, Like her voice sounded exactly like Karen Carpenter. It was this beautiful voice. And the jingle went, there's a light of hope when you light a hope. There's a hope for you and me. At last, you've found what you've been looking for in hope, the luxury cigarette. That's the jingle. At last you've found what you've been hoping for. You know, there is this 
fundamental reality. As spiritual beings, we have a state of existence where we will find and exist in true happiness, where we will experience the reality of a profound state of spiritual love. But because we, we, we've lost the plot, we have been so conditioned in, in the materialistic society in which we live, true spirituality is, is practically non-existent. I mean, most people have this idea, okay, materialism, yeah, that's bad. What is materialism? Ah, I don't know, wanting too many material things, you know. Everybody's got these uh, ideas that are actually not very clear. And they talk about, you know, oh, being spiritual is good. You know, we should seek a more spiritual and balanced life. But nobody really knows what it means. And so you got people just tripping out and rainbows and unicorns and butterflies and, you know, that whole, that whole world. No, that's a material experience. That's not spiritual. It's got nothing to do with spiritual. That's just la-la land, fantasy. Mm. The foundation of materialism is the singular idea that I am material. That I am this material body, that I am comprised of these material elements, that I will find happiness, I will find fulfillment through material experience, through material and sensual stimulation. And it's not true. The foundation of all spirituality is the recognition that I am an eternal spiritual being. And the path of spiritual life is that quest to discover my true spiritual identity and nature and to exist, to exist in that experience. And to do that requires a massive paradigm shift. It doesn't mean you've got to run away to the mountains or join a monastery or anything like that. No, you don't have to physically go anywhere. You have to start re-looking at your life, at what's driving you. You have to start considering about how to make better choices, choices that produce brilliant outcomes. And it is within your power, it is your capacity to do this. You simply need to find out how. So the process of, of um, the process of, of, of spiritual, the spiritual quest is a process by which one f tries to identify such spiritual knowledge, because this knowledge offers us a very clear path and direction. And then we begin to 
incorporated gradually into our life. And in so doing, it has such an effect on our consciousness that we move, we shift entirely from this view and this this wrong idea that the body is me to the view that I am a spiritual being and I live in that experience. And as one progresses in this journey, your life transforms. The good things begin to manifest. The good things that you develop more compassion, that you begin to actually care about others, that you are not selfish and self-centered. I mean, my kind of selfie thing, it's like, what happened to us? I mean, can you imagine 10 years ago, somebody's on vacation and they, they're in some place and they see someone, they ask, please take a picture of me. And then, yeah, can you take a picture of me? You know, and then someone asks, can you, can you take a picture of me? Thank you, you know, can you take a picture? You'd look at that person like they are unhinged. This is an unhealthy mental state. And now we live that reality. That's what we do. And it's not only okay, it's incredibly cool. What happened there? What happened? How was it that we became so misdirected? So this is a really big subject. And, and I, I think you're pretty brave for coming out. Probably didn't know what you're getting yourself into. <laughs> So I acknowledge your, your bravery and I acknowledge your desire for a deeper understanding and more meaning in life. And my hope is that perhaps, although I am not a very good messenger, perhaps there is something that you have heard that will stimulate you to begin a journey of actual spiritual discovery so that your life might become transformed, yes, but it may become actually extremely happy, extremely fulfilling, and that you become a better person because of it. Okay? I think that's about it. I got heaps more, but I know I'll be here all on my own at yeah, 8 o'clock tonight. <laughs> so um, I think um, we were going to do a little um, more kirtan meditation I was going to lead you in. But before it, just wondering if, if anybody had a, a question that they wanted asking. Um, let me just say... There's somebody at the back, their hand up. Um, let me just say, you know, in these environments, sometimes we, we become a little hesitant to ask a question because we think it might be dumb or not so important or whatever. Uh, let me assure you 
that any question that arises as a result of this consideration, this discussion, is incredibly important. There are no dumb or unimportant questions. They're all very important and very significant. Um, I'm having a hard time hearing that. Maybe you can relay the question or is can we do something with that? Okay, I'm having a. I, I think because I'm down here in this hole and, and everything's kind of going over me. Okay, like. He said that, that people have. Uh, uh, you're saying people are living inside their head, yeah. inside their mind. How can we train ourselves so that we are living the reality. in the reality? In reality, yes. Um, it's it's going to have two two parts. One part is to receive some knowledge an understanding of how we need to redirect our life. And the second part, so there's going to be quite a few things, you know, um, connected with that. The second part of it is to engage in an activity or a process that begins to alter us so that we begin to see things differently. Um, this is actually difficult in a short period, but let me just say this. You know, the, the modern idea in this world is that the mind is a function of the brain. But from the yoga perspective, and if you actually ask many of the leading neurologists in the world, neurosurgeons, they will absolutely they don't hold that idea. They're unsure about things, but they are definitely convinced that the mind is not a product of the brain. And it's sort of like, well, okay, that's this is another big subject. Sorry, guys. It's a bit of a... So we need these two things. We need, we need, we need some direction so that we be, our value system begins to change. Right now, what's our value system? Our value system is what is imposed on us. It hasn't been self-generated. People tell us what to wear and what's fashionable and what's cool and what's not cool and what's really good. And, you know, let's check Rotten Tomatoes. What did everybody say about that before I go watch that movie? You know, I'm, I'm really into everybody's opinion and I'm into this manipulation that, that I receive. So there needs to be an understanding of where things fit. And there needs to be an understanding of what will produce actual happiness and what is going to produce some temporary material experience and be able to see that with clarity and accept that. But I need, I need to live or engage in rather a life 
and a process, a practice that is transformative, that clears the fog. In, in the yoga system, they speak of how everybody is like walking around in a dense fog. And the word they use it is maya, which means illusion. And of course, the biggest illusion is this idea that the body is me. And if my body is beautiful or handsome or well-dressed, then I will be loved. I will find happiness. I will find the perfection I seek. It's totally not true. It's got nothing to do with how you physically look or what you're wearing or anything. It's a, it's a spiritual state. So there's two things are needed. You need some um, understandings that begin to redirect how you're living and begin to change your values, meaning what you think is really important. And then a process that clears the fog so we actually begin to see with great clarity the spiritual process is so transformative that the way in which you will look at other people, the way in which you will look at the world, the way in which you will look at your body will all utterly change. It'll change for the better. But um, is that good enough for now? Yeah. Okay. Um, so you talked about um, changing our, shifting our mind, not looking at what is me, and creating that spiritual journey in a physical. So, what are the concrete steps and guidelines that we should we start doing? Like, for example, in business, what we are doing for the art. From very perspective, what are those concrete steps? I think I've figured it out. The speakers are pointing this way. I don't have any speakers pointing this way, so I need a little help. You said, what is the concrete steps and guidelines we can start to apply in our lives? Concrete step. Okay, the first concrete step that you can engage in is the process of meditation which you've been given a little introduction to today and which we will do a little bit more. This is not, this is not, an, you know, we're not just singing a song. We're not just, you know, making noise or sound vibration. There is a, a profoundly spiritual component to what we are doing that is utterly transformative. And that's a really important thing more important than even trying to acquire knowledge and understanding. Um, the people that have put on this event, the Australian School of Meditation and Yoga, they are longtime friends. They are enormously capable of, of helping you um, examine and look at and perhaps want to try um, and test for yourself. You know, one of the fantastic things about the, the Vedic system of, of spiritual education, in that system, it was considered really bad to just believe and accept things. It was necessary to inquire 
and to learn, to learn how to inquire in a very penetrating way, and for that to now become a foundation for a, a course in life that will bring change. And as I'm doing this, I am required to consider, is this really making a difference or not? And if not, why not? And if it is, what more do I need to do? So um, apart from just mentioning the need to engage in the process of actual meditation, which we'll talk about in a minute, um, if you want to learn more about how to practice that and some of the daily practices that you can do, they, they have a Sanskrit word, sadhana. Sadhana is, is the daily practice that one adopts that will be transformative. And so one learns to set aside even a very small amount of time to regularly engage in some potent process that will transform me, that will bring this change and make it so I can see with more clarity. Okay? So um, the question is about, um, you mentioned that uh, as a beginning and end to the material side of things. So what about someone who's really passionate about pursuing a certain idea or a certain course and then uh, ends in a way that is really painful to them? So um, what are your thoughts? Is passion to, to attach to this thing that's um, uh, in the end, that um, something that's really material? And this passion in itself, the bottom line, pursuit, then one that is attached to this new building. And what are the thoughts about that angle? Yeah, I, I, I got about, I got about 35% of it, I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, he said, um, you mentioned in material, there is a beginning and an end. Yeah. Uh, and, yeah. and um, is there, what are you passionate in something that you do? Is this has come to an end. And it's come, it's come to a bit of end. And it's painful. And it's painful. And it's really hard to let go. And yeah. So is that passion in that sense uh, something that is bodily or essential, let's go back to spiritual? And um, is that passion uh, a bad thing? Yeah. Well, I, I'm not going to say that that passion to pursue things is bad. It's not bad. But when I think that if I aggressively, strongly, in a very focused way, you know, pursue something, um, that will provide me everything that I'm looking for. That's the problem. If I accept that my engagement, you know, most of the creative things that are done are, are the result of a lot of passion. They require passion. But when a person becomes too ruled by passion, there is a flip side to every coin. The flip side to desire, which is what passion is all about, the desire to create or to achieve or to accomplish, there will automatically be a distress attached to that. That inseparable, inseparable. And so you can be a great accomplished creative artist and be a total nutcase, right? 
Vincent van Gogh comes to mind. You know, <laughs> tormented, <laughs> really tormented, because these things often fit together. And they fit together because people have unrealistic expectations of their desires. Just because you have a desire, it doesn't mean what you think you need to do now is good or right or it's the best thing for you or will have a great outcome. Just because the desire is strong doesn't determine those things. The desire is just the desire. But we become so fixated with desire that we think if I have a desire, it's like it's holy, it's sacred, it's really important <laughs> that it will produce a fantastic outcome if my desire is really strong. And that's, that's crazy land because that's not the way things work. That's not a reality. But we are told that it is, unfortunately. So it's about being realistic. When we are very realistic and we understand okay, these things with some clarity, then we pursue them, but we understand that the result, it's not going to give me everything I'm looking for. It's going to be limited. And that's okay. That's cool. That's fine. And something else comes up and I think I'd like to pursue that. That's fine. Just don't have this unrealistic. You know, so much of the unhappiness particularly in relations, come from unrealistic expectations where we have these demands or these ideas that somebody else or something else is going to deliver the happiness I seek. It's not. Everything I believe is always been materialistic that we've been talking about. How do you listen to you and all that sort of thing? How do you become a person that what, you know, give all your materialistic things away? How do you become a person that? Well, how, how do you change in a way to all your materialistic things that you have accumulated on your working life? Um, how do you in life is really important. If your purpose is misdirected and not properly thought out, it doesn't end very well. But generally, having a purpose is actually important. And trying to really consider what should be one's purpose in life is really an important thing to do. Part of the eternal nature of the spiritual being is to serve. And because of that, because of that, when you show kindness to someone, 
when you do some good, unexpected, somebody is in a bad situation, and you've got a choice of either just walking by and ignoring it or actually going over and lending some help, when you do that, every single person has this really good feeling inside as a result of doing it. It's actually a really good thing if, when you raise children to expose them to engaging in charitable or kind activities, showing kindness, doing things, taking them to places where, you know, where there's some social conscience and doing something for others. That will always, that will always be a better experience than living a selfish life. A selfish and self-centered life can never produce any happiness or fulfillment. It's impossible. It doesn't, doesn't work that way. But the answer is not then to just give everything away. There are many ways in which a person can show help. And to try and learn a way by which you can actually spiritually benefit others, you can help them grow in understanding and appreciation is actually the best thing that you can do with your life and with your resources. There is, there is in, in, in Sanskrit, the word compassion has a most amazing definition the definition is the inability to tolerate the suffering of others. It's not that you're just disturbed by others' suffering, but your inability to tolerate that, to be able to just put up with it, when you are moved to actually act. But there are many levels on which you can seek to help someone. You can help them materially, and, and that's fine, and it needs to be done. But the best thing is when you can help someone spiritually. This may not completely satisfy you. Again, I will, I will direct you to my hosts who can broaden that for you and help you, you know, really examine that and give you some food for thought. Is that Okay. Hands everywhere. Okay, go on. Jump up. <laughs> Just something quite very simple, but it's always confusing in my mind because we're saying that like everything which happens in our life is the result of what you are doing, like our karma. Mm -hmm. But in some case in my head, and we always hear that like God is in control too, or you. For example, you are here because you are in God's hands or He just opened the way for you to go to some certain way. So, I don't know, but I can't digest it completely how these two. Is that like is in control or is that something that yeah. maybe... So I, you probably didn't hear. I mean, she, We were talking about, she says, you know, this need to make good choices and the fact that you do have these... You know, if if we are suffering, it's always a re result of our own bad choices and everything. And how how does all of this fit? This idea of karma and karmic reaction and everything, with the concepts that people have of 
God being ultimately in control and we're in God's hands, you know, as people talk like this. Well, if we're going to talk in, in, in that direction, there's also a saying, man proposes and God disposes. Which means ultimately, you know, we can make choices and we are free to do that. The results are not forced upon us, but they are the natural consequence of a choice. If I put my hand in the door and close it, there's no way I'm not going to feel pain. That's the consequence of that action. It's not that I'm being punished or anything. It's just what happens. And so there is this understanding of a greater order, a greater order, and that we are ultimately not in control of everything. That's absolutely true. But what we are in control of is our personal choices and the actions that we will take. And each one of them will have a consequence that is not forced upon us, but it is inescapable. That's, think about that one for a little bit. Yeah. Can I ask, you have mentioned that um, we don't need to do endless activity to feel excited. So what do we need to do to feel excited um, my, my point is that, maybe to clarify, the excitement that we get from material activity or sensual stimulation, that excitement that is there and the pleasurable experiences are not the same as happy. Somebody can be doing these things and be very miserable. Someone can be eating delicious food, but they have a compulsion to eat and they can't stop. And then they are all troubled and distressed and want to go and throw up. Or So here you've got a conflict. Your belly likes the feeling of food going into it and filling up when it's empty. Your tongue likes the taste and textures and the aromas that you smell. You like all those things. But on the same hand, that experience is producing grave unhappiness because you may have a weird relationship with food. So equating those experiences with actual happiness, that's the mistake. We need to seek our happiness actually in spiritual development and spiritual growth, spiritual activity. Just like your body needs food, you also need spiritual food. And that spiritual food is actually experienced when one engages in, in meditation. I think I think this is what we'll do because there's still some hand shooting up um, and some people may want to leave. Let's have a little quick meditation session to close it out. And if you want to hang out and talk some more or ask questions, then um, you're very welcome to do that. Does that sound a good way to deal with it? And then the ones that want to go or need to go, they can easily do that. So the process of, of, of meditation is not a process of mind control 
or making the mind peaceful. The process, the actual process of meditation means to submerse yourself in that which is transcendental. Just like if, if my body is dirty, what I need to do is move it to where there is water. And when I immerse my body in water, it becomes cleansed. In the same way, we need to take our spiritual being, us, and our body and our mind, and immerse it in that which is spiritual, which is transcendental. And it will have this effect of purifying both the heart and the mind. It will bring a clarity of vision over time. And it will give rise to a spiritual awakening and an experience that becomes increasingly more profound and, and wonderful and truly pleasurable. So um, to that end, we use um, spiritual sound in the form of mantra, as it was described earlier. And the one I will ask you to um, join me in is a very simple mantra. It is Om Hari Om, just three, three words. And as you already saw, we will... Um, I will lead, lead the singing and then you simply sit there taking it in orally through the ears, oral reception. You take it in and it enters your mind and actually the core of your heart and one should simply just immerse themselves in that and then when it is your time to respond, that you repeat these spiritual sounds. Mm -hmm. 